and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Good news, everybody. A tiny beetle is the first ever new insect species to be discovered in fossilized poo. Oh. (laughs) The beetles were found in a lump of coprolite, which is the fancy science term for fossilized poo. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking this was produced by an ancient dinosaur ancestor. A team of vertebrate paleontologists and entomologists used a technique called Synchroton microtomography to create Mm. 3D reconstructions of beetle remnants from the Triassic Mm. period. (laughs) So it was like chewed up. It's not like it came out living or anything. Correct. I mean, it has been (laughs) fossilized for a long time. Well, sure, it's dead now. I'm just saying. It's dead now, but, you know, humans do have quite a habit of trying to reanimate previously extinct or Mm -hmm. fossilized things. But this particular poo contained a number of near complete beetles. Mm. They found that the majority of the specimens belonged to the same type of beetle, and the scientists have now described it as Triamixa coprolithica. The word poo is in the name now. <laughs> That's so sad. This beetle did so many things in its life, and it just so happens that the one we found was in poo, and now for the rest of its scientific existence, it's going to be known as the poo beetle. Like- right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, these beetles were so well-preserved, they were able to establish that this beetle represents a previously unknown extinct lineage of the suborder Mixophagia, whose modern representatives are small and chow down on algae in aquatic environments. That does certainly lend a little bit of credence to that wild hypothesis we've covered about dinosaurs and their gigantism being a result of thriving in aquatic conditions. So, oh, right. I know that's been a little bit poo-pooed in the scientific community <laughs> as a theory, but just saying, these pieces are lining up. So mm-hmm. the producer of the poo was an ancestor of the dinosaurs called Siliosaurus opolensis that lived in Poland around 230 million years ago. The thing of the dinosaur that produced the poo was relatively small, about 2.3 meters in length and weighing about 15 kilograms. I don't have metric measurements being a sad American, but relatively Wait, small. 2.3 meters? Uh-huh. Is relatively small. Oh, that's the dinosaur. Yes. Okay. I thought that was the poo. And I was like, that's massive. What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean, maybe they had really big dumps, but being fossilized, they may have been broken up. I would love to hear a story later about largest dinosaur dump ever recorded. (laughs) But they're thinking that the animal had small conical teeth, may have had a beak at the tip of its jaws, which it could have used to root around for insects in leaf litter. Hmm. They're thinking that this beetle was probably too tiny to be the main source of food. Instead, they're thinking these insects probably shared a habitat with other prey and larger beetles, none of which were possible to identify in the poo. (laughs) Only the small bits survive. Only the small bits survive. That's how nature works, baby. Yeah, that makes sense. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org, and it's titled, There's Something About Lizard Blood. Oh, yeah. What is it? uh, (laughs) We're going to find out. So going along the theme of insects, ticks suck. 
Yes. Literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, mm-hmm. these tiny arachnids inspire almost universal heebie-jeebies with their seemingly indestructible bodies and Terminator-like determination to gorge <laughs> themselves on our blood. <laughs> but the biggest threat to humans isn't actually in the ticks themselves, it's the pathogens that are in their gut. Mm-hmm. Some species of tick carry a type of spiral-shaped bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, better known as the pathogen that causes Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. And as tick season grows longer and more intense, the threat of disease gets harder to avoid. Unless, of course, you are on the West Coast. Journalist Constance Casey in 2014 wrote, A recent test found more than half of adult ticks tested in the northeastern United States carried the pathogen. In California, less than 2% did. Hmm. Some scientists propose that the lower rate of Lyme in the far western states could be owed to the high populations of western fence lizards. Hmm. In California, these fence lizards are a preferred host for ticks in their small nymphal stage. And in 1998, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, discovered that a substance in the blood of the western fence lizard possesses an antibiotic superpower. Hmm. When infected ticks latch on to the fence lizard, a pathogen-fighting protein in its blood neutralizes the Lyme. And a single lizard can be infected with up to 40 ticks. Ooh. She says it looks horrible, but the ticks are essentially being sanitized. Ew. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so- thanks? Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So does this mean that we can rid the world of Lyme disease by simply flooding it with lizards? Not quite, unfortunately. Mm. Ecosystems are a lot more complicated than that. Mm. First of all, these little lizards would not survive in the chillier Midwestern climate, and a Mm. bunch of dead lizards would be of absolutely no use to anyone. Right? I mean, they Uh, don't know that. Except maybe some vultures. There's some creative folks out there. I don't think they should be so quick to judge. That's true. (laughs) I mean, we've covered some pretty interesting stuff you could do with all sorts of stuff. (laughs) On this podcast. (laughs) I I don't want to be too specific because I don't remember the specifics. Nor do we want to hamper anyone's creativity, but let's be kind to our living creatures. Sure, sure. No, we're not going to murder lizards for art. We're just going to say if you had a bunch of dead lizards, there's Mm -hmm. options, you know, like don't write them off. Yeah, use the whole lizard. Use the whole lizards all over the coasts of California. Um, So Casey writes, Second, the California lizard's glowing reputation was tarnished by a 2011 study in which a small area was cleared of fence lizards. Scientists predicted that removing the reptiles would lead to an increase in the percentage of ticks carrying the pathogen. Instead, they found that lizard removal decreased the density of infected ticks. Hmm. So the lizard's antibiotic blood isn't a magic fix. The prevalence of ticks and the diseases they carry is much more dependent on the diversity of the ecosystem around them. So if you want to keep ticks under control, it's much better to get the food web under control, writes Mm -hmm. Casey. Mm -hmm. Lyme risk is lower when there are fewer mice, shrews, and chipmunks. There are fewer of those small animals when there are more foxes. Foxes and other mid-sized predators unfortunately decline or disappear when the forest is fragmented, Mm. while the small mammals live in a suburbanized landscape. Mm. And in addition to lizards' magical lime-stopping blood, plenty of other animals have developed methods for controlling tick populations. For instance, possums are immune to Lyme disease and when attacked will simply pop pesky ticks like M&M's. Oh, I mean, I could do them raw, but if they were like all roasted and pulverized into a protein powder that didn't give me Lyme disease, I'd I'd be game. Yeah, you got to be open minded. Yeah. I mean, if it's abstract away enough from the actual form factor of a tick. Right, right. It's not quite like eating a grasshopper or something like that. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) next link. 
Next link. All right. So there were a whole bunch of articles that came out last week about the new trend among Chinese millennials known as lying flat. Did you guys happen to read anything about that? No. No. So it's nothing terribly shocking. It's basically just young adults being disaffected with their economy and what they see as a lack of upward mobility, especially when it comes with such high work expectations culturally. Right. I was going to ask if it's like the new version of planking, but this does not sound like that. (laughs) No, no. No, It's it's much more serious. Yeah. And terribly relatable. Hello. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's worse there. The common saying in China is that you're supposed to work 996 or 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And, you know, this obviously understandably has a lot of young people over there asking basically why. Why should I, especially when I don't seem to get anything out of it over the years? Mm -hmm. But so the reason the lying flat movement got so much attention in the news over here last week was because the Chinese government actually stepped up and censored it. They deleted all references to lying flat on social media. They shut down a bunch of support groups that had formed. And so that reaction from their government is what made it newsworthy enough to make it over here. But one of the things that American media didn't cover in depth was where this movement really started. Most of the articles just traced it back to this one guy who posted a picture of himself laying in bed during the middle of the day. Which, (sighs) by the way, if taking a nap is seditious, I'm in trouble. Like, that's... (laughs) (laughs) But we have an article from Lance Ng, a Chinese-speaking entrepreneur and investor, about the true origins of the lying flat phenomenon, and it's called The AI Wolf That Preferred Suicide Over Eating Sheep. Whoa. So (laughs) the whole thing started back in 2019 when two Chinese university students created a machine learning algorithm to play a computer game. The game involved two wolves, six sheep, and a bunch of boulders placed randomly in a field. The wolves, being played by the computer, had to maneuver around the boulders and try to catch all of the sheep in the fastest time possible. Basically, it was just a shortest path kind of calculation, Mm -hmm. made a little more complicated by the fact that the sheep were moving. But the goal here was for the AI to learn the purpose of the game and get better at it on its own, rather than just being told optimize this path. Mm. So they incentivized the computer with a point system. For every sheep it caught, the computer got 10 points, and if it hit a boulder, the round ended, and to make it understand that speed mattered, the computer lost one-tenth of a point for every second that passed. But like a lot of novice AI programmers, they didn't really think about things through the cold, harsh perspective of a computer. They were thinking about it like, I'm a wolf. Of course I want to catch all the sheep because they're delicious. (laughs) Whereas the computer's only goal was to maximize its points. Mm. And so the result was that depending on the layout of the sheep, the wolves would catch one or two and then decide that the time deductions made hunting the rest of the sheep a losing proposition so they would deliberately run into a boulder to freeze the score and cut their losses. Whoa. Yeah. So for the two university students, this wolf project was just one of many learning experiences along the way to graduation. But one of those students went on to take a teaching position after he graduated, and in March of this year, he happened to tell one of his own students about the Little Wolf AI experiment and specifically described it as the wolves committing suicide on the boulders rather than continuing to chase the sheep. And it was really just about don't fall into this AI pitfall when you're programming, but his colorful description struck a chord with the student who screenshotted the conversation and posted it to social media. And as it went viral on Chinese social media, there were two major reactions. The first was, you know, the standard warnings about AI ethics and safety, including a lot of references to other AI algorithms that had gone wrong. 
such as a 1994 experiment that was meant to model animal evolution, but ended up training the animals to mate with the first animal they encountered and then Ooh. immediately murder that mate for food. Oh my gosh. Which, if we recall Angie's article from last week, it's not actually unheard of in the animal kingdom. <laughs> yep. But another project from 1998 tried to use AI to calculate the best cable breaking strength for planes landing on an aircraft carrier. And fortunately, it was all in simulation because the computer in that case concluded that the best option was one that landed the plane safely every time, but also killed the pilot every time. No, no. But AI fears aside, the other reaction, of course, was what would ultimately become the lying flat movement, where people basically said that wolf AI isn't broken. It's right. It mm -hmm. is better to just off yourself on a boulder rather than keep hunting sheep that you know you'll never be able to catch. It's the Sisyphean myth, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. One commenter on Weibo, which is like Chinese Twitter, wrote, Just like real life, the safety net is too low, the incentives too few, and what with the time penalty, many have decided to lie flat is the best solution. And, you know, as the author points out, the wolf game itself is really just a symbolic thing for people with very real grievances to latch onto. Because, you know, in the end, it was just a case of poor programming. After discovering the bouldering suicide bug, the two students realized that the penalty for hitting a boulder should be a massive loss of points instead. And after about two million more iterations, the AI wolves were usually able to catch all the sheep in about 25 seconds of gameplay. Hmm. So, you know, I guess that means life's worth living after all. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, guys, I got a little bit of a trick question for you today. What color is a mirror? Uh, Whatever color you see in it. It's, it's, it's yeah. you colored. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, silver. Like, they have silver backing, right? Nope. Oh, well. Mirrors are not silver or colorless, according to the subhead of this ZME science article. The real answer is white with a faint green tint. Now, green? I, I'll grant you green, but I always felt like that was just like a low quality mirror. Like, well, you know, like sometimes in department stores <laughs> yep. and stuff, there's like a little bit of greenishness to it. You've caught on to it. And Way, you were partially right, right? I mean, to talk about the color of a mirror is a little bit nuanced because we perceive the contour and color of objects due to light bouncing off of them that hits our retina. Most of us have taken early biology, may understand how this mechanism works. So in practice, there is no object that absorbs or reflects 100% of incoming light. And this is important in order for us to explain how to discern the true color of a mirror. Not all reflections are the same. The reflection of light and other forms of electromagnetic radiation can be categorized into two types of reflection. We've got specular reflection, which is light reflected from a smooth surface at a definite angle, whereas diffuse reflection is produced by rough surfaces that reflect light in all directions. So a good metaphor is when you're looking at a beautiful mountain lake and the water is still, you'll see a mirror image of that mountain. But if the mm -hmm. water is wavy, you've thrown a rock into it or something, it's kind of murky. You no longer see that mountain, right? Mm -hmm. So mirrors employ specular reflection. And when visible white light hits the surface of a mirror at an incident angle, it's reflected back into space at a reflected angle angle that is equal to the incident angle. Okay, I feel like I'm in math class here. <laughs> uh, the light that hits a mirror is not separated into component colors because it's not being bent or refracted. So all wavelengths are being reflected at equal angles. And the result is an image of the source of light. So now we get to the actual mirror color. Mirrors are not perfectly white because the material they're made from 
is imperfect itself. For example, if a department store is doing some cost-cutting measures because they're getting <laughs> mirrors in bulk, but point blank, the material is just imperfect when it comes to all mirrors. Modern mirrors are made by silvering, which is spraying a thin layer of silver or aluminum onto the back of a sheet of glass, and the silica glass substrate reflects a bit more green light than other wavelengths, which gives the reflected mirror image a greenish hue. And this greenish tint is very imperceptible, but it is truly there. And the way that you can test this and see it in action is if you place two perfectly aligned mirrors. Facing each other, so the reflected light is constantly bouncing off of each other. This phenomenon is known as a mirror tunnel or an infinity mirror. And according to a study performed by physicists in 2004, the color of objects becomes darker and greener the deeper we look into the mirror tunnel. And they、mm -hmm. found that mirrors are biased at wavelengths between 495 and 570 nanometers, which corresponds to green. Okay, so but the green is basically the glass. Like if you look at like an auto glass or a, just a sheet of plate glass from the side, you can see it's kind of greenish. Yeah. But is it a mirror if it doesn't include the glass? Like, what if you just put that silver substrate on nothing and used that as a reflection? Would it reflect? Because then it's not a mirror. Right. It's a reflective just, piece of foil. Exactly. You've got a reflective surface and not what will I guess qualify definitionally as a mirror. Okay. Now I'm going to make mirrors out of other things just to prove them. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know and report back. <laughs> I, I will, I'm going to start an industry. I'm going to have a whole factory of unbreakable mirrors for、uh, good luck. I mean, there would probably be a market for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are. There's like plastic mirrors. Like there, there's all sorts of applications where you don't want a mirror to shatter, so they're actually made of like. Plastic and silvering, or various other things, which I guess means they're not mirrors. Like yeah, they don't count; they're, they're not real. Just reflective imaging surface that、hmm. rolls off the tongue nicely. That's right, right. <laughs> yeah, RISs. I, I've heard. There you go. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from SingularityHub.com. It's titled "Breakthrough CRISPR Gene Therapy Could Be a One and Done Injection."、Ooh. Yeah. So. Early CRISPR trials have focused on hereditary blindness and diseases of the blood, including cancer, sickle cell anemia, and beta thalassemia. And although cutting edge, the therapies can be costly and intense.、Mm -hmm. In one trial for sickle cell anemia, doctors remove cells from the body, edit them in a dish, and then infuse them back into the patient.、Mm -hmm. In another trial, practitioners inject the gene editing system directly into target tissues in the eye.、Mm -hmm. Such approaches won't work as readily for other diseases, so researchers and doctors are looking for a general delivery method, like any other medication. And now, a clinical trial from University College London or UCL has taken a step in that direction. Participants in this trial suffer from a condition called hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis, in which a mutated gene produces a malformed protein, the transthyretin, that builds up in and damages the heart and nerves,、mm. and this disease is eventually fatal.、Mm. Patients receive a single infusion of a CRISPR-based therapy into their bloodstream. Blood carried the therapy to the liver, where it switched off the mutated gene and curtailed production of the errant protein. Whoa! So, how does the therapy work? It's made up of three parts. A tiny bubble of fat called a lipid nanoparticle carries a payload of CRISPR machinery. Billions of these CRISPR-carrying nanoparticles are infused into the bloodstream, making their way to the liver, the source of the dysfunctional protein. 
and a sequence of mRNA instructs the cells to produce the Cas9 protein, or CRISPR's genetic scissors, mm -hmm. which then links up with the guide RNA, seeks out the target gene, and snips it. The cell repairs the DNA at the site of the break, but imperfectly switching the gene off and shutting down production of the problematic protein. By targeting the genes themselves, the protein is permanently silenced. Uh, this sounds a little bit like a cure to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Patrick Doherty, a trial participant, told NPR he jumped at the opportunity. Sure. Doherty is an avid trekker and hiker and was diagnosed with transthyretin amyloidosis, which had killed his father after noticing symptoms like tingling fingers and breathlessness on walks. He said, it's a terrible prognosis. This is a condition that deteriorates very rapidly. It's just dreadful. And Doherty started feeling better a few weeks after the treatment and said improvements have continued. He called it a one-hit wonder, a two-hour process, and that's it for the rest of your life. Wow. That's yeah, pretty impressive. Is, I know, for an incurable condition, that's amazing. And especially one that's so rare. Right. Because you're not going to get money to do research for a disease that doesn't affect that many people. But exactly. it, if they're doing research on the process and the process can basically treat all diseases, then all sorts of rare things are going to actually finally get attention. Yeah. Yeah. But although the results are promising, there are reasons to temper expectations. Mm -hmm. The trial, as noted, was small and focused on safety. The future work will further test safety and efficacy in larger groups, which, as is apparent from recent experience with COVID, can reveal rare side effects or prove disappointing despite early successes. Mm -hmm. Researchers will also look out for off-target SNPs in the liver or other cells. A benefit of the approach, however, is the cells break down the mRNA after they've made the Cas9 protein. So in other words, the gene editing system doesn't persist very long. Hmm. That's a comforting thing to think of. Like, what else are you going to edit haywire? Right, while you're wandering while around you're in, in there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, even if it's like, oh, it wears off after 10 years. So you get another shot. Like, it's still life-saving. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It also remains to be seen whether this approach would work as well in other diseases. The liver was a prime target for the trial because it greedily soaks up foreign substances. Mm -hmm. Other organs and tissues may not be as amenable to the general infusion of the therapy. Yeah. Finally, the treatment may come with a hefty price tag, perhaps yep. running well, into yes. the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, but it gets um, cheaper over time. Like, everything is expensive on the first one, and then the second one is a lot cheaper. Sure. Especially yeah. if they turn this towards liver conditions like hepatitis B, which is a major viral, mm -hmm. you know, incurable disease that affects a ton of the global population. That's right. Absolutely. And if it improves men's sex performance, you're there. Like, it's going to be yeah. funded in a day. <laughs> For everyone! <Instantly>. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from the BBC, and it's called How Children Are Spoofing COVID-19 Tests with Soft Drinks. Oh, no. Oh. So the first thing we need to clarify here is that unlike in the U.S., at-home testing kits for COVID are cheap and easy to obtain in the U.K. Households are encouraged to test themselves on a regular basis and, of course, notify their employer or school if they get a positive test and quarantine themselves for two weeks accordingly. What a fantasy land, right? <laughs> but the way these at-home tests work was actually kind of surprising to me. So the initial steps are just like a COVID test that you might get here at a doctor's office. You swab your nose and then you swirl that swab in a buffering solution to preserve the antibodies and everything else in it. But then, whereas we would send that off to a lab... UK residents have a second item in the kit known as a lateral flow test, 
or what most Americans would say looks like a pregnancy test. Oh. You apply the liquid to the end of the absorbent stick, the liquid travels upward into the device, and it passes two kind of checkpoint lines which either turn red or don't. No red lines means you screwed it up, the test is no good. One red line means the test worked, but you don't have COVID. And two red lines means you have it. But that's just what we see on the outside. On the inside, some very cool things are happening. So before the liquid actually gets up to the testing window, it passes over a little sponge of COVID antibodies attached to gold nanoparticles. Like there's actual gold in these and in pregnancy tests. Huh. It's not enough to be worth anything, obviously. And the main reason they use gold is because at a small enough scale, particles of gold actually appear bright red rather than yellow. And they don't explain that at all. So maybe we need a second article about what color is gold, actually. But But so each of the antibodies on this sponge are wearing a little gold particle as a backpack. And when the liquid passes over, everything gets washed up together and the antibodies will attach to any COVID virus that may be present in the nasal swab. So now the liquid is dragging, theoretically, viruses wearing little gold antibody hats, as well as a bunch of other loose antibodies that didn't find any virus to stick to. Then it passes over the first line, which is also made up of COVID antibodies, but this time they're glued down. So these antibodies also latch onto the viruses and trap them in place. So on a microscopic level, you now have a bunch of little stacks of antibody, virus, antibody, gold particle, and all of them clustered together in place makes the line appear red. So then the rest of the liquid keeps going until it gets to the second line, which is designed to trap all gold particles no matter what they're attached to. And so you get your second red line indicating that, yes, Gold antibodies were definitely washed up far enough to get the job done and the test worked. All of which is very cool. It works in minutes. Wish we had them. But (laughs) it wasn't long before someone in a UK flat somewhere said, I wonder what happens if you put something other than human nasal juice on this stick. (laughs) And unfortunately, the answer, which spread rapidly on TikTok and elsewhere, is that a number of seemingly random liquids will in fact cause both lines to turn red and give a false positive COVID test. Oh, dear. And of course, you know, initially there was a big outcry from people who said either the tests were no good or for the more conspiracy-minded that the tests were intended to give false positives to keep the population afraid. None of which is true, just to be clear. But as several scientists have pointed out, The liquids that trigger the false positives, which include soda, orange juice, and a handful of other beverages, are all very acidic. So Mm. acids break down proteins, including antibodies, and this causes them to behave in weird ways and attach to all sorts of substances they never would have normally attached to. And this is actually why you have to put that nasal swab into a buffer solution after it comes out of your nose. The buffer solution changes the pH to neutral and allows the test to work properly in the first place. To demonstrate this, one video even showed that if you put that same soda in the buffering solution first, then run it up the test strip, it does in fact show a negative result like it's supposed to. Mm. But unfortunately, it turns out that having a false positive COVID test in your possession is good for more than just generating outrage. If, for example, (laughs) you're a British student, it can also get you out of school for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the primary motivator for this going (laughs) viral on TikTok was kids telling each other, hey, guys, here's a cool way to prank your parents and get to stay home. (laughs) 
Oh, no. Apparently, kids faking COVID tests with soda has become such a big problem in the UK <laughs> that several schools have sent home letters to parents explaining why it's happening and what it is and warning them that they need to actually watch their children take the test before pulling them out of school to quarantine. Oh, Which, my gosh. You know, I, I got to say, I like our British friends. I don't understand the mentality of anyone who would be like, I want two more weeks of quarantine. Like, that does not sound fun to me at all, regardless of how much you hate school. Just skip school. Like, what? <laughs> but that's it. Children are devious, and there's science behind it. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, let's keep talking about gold, since this seems to be an emerging theme. From SciTech Daily. Scientists have discovered that fool's gold, also known as pyrite, is not so foolish after all. <gasps> they lied Ooh, to me. They did. <laughs> that was what all the geology museums were like, here, kids, have some fool's gold, but it isn't real. Well, I hope you held on to it because Curtin University research has found <laughs> tiny amounts of gold can be trapped inside pyrite, which actually makes it a bit more valuable than its name suggests. So uh, better start hoarding all that pyrite, y'all. You'll never know when it comes in handy. <laughs> or just, you know, hoard a shipment of pregnancy tests, apparently. like <laughs> <laughs> Weirdest hoarder home ever. Um, <laughs> Nothing so but this... rocks and pregnancy no, tests. No, there's a... There's a problem that needs to be investigated in that house. Um, well, this particular study, which was published in the journal Geology in collaboration with the University of Western Australia and the China University of Geoscience, provides an in-depth analysis to better understand the mineralogical location of the trapped golden pyrite, which could lead to more environmentally friendly gold extraction methods. Hmm. The lead researcher said this new type of, quote, invisible gold has not previously been recognized, and it's only observable using a scientific instrument called an atom probe. Hmm. The discovery rate of new gold deposits is in decline worldwide, with the quality of ore degrading, which is parallel to the value of precious metal increasing. So previously, gold extractors have been able to find gold and pyrite either as nanoparticles or as a pyrite gold alloy. But what we have discovered is that gold can also be hosted in nanoscale crystal defects, which are really tiny. They're 100,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. Hmm. The team also explored gold extraction methods and possible ways to obtain the trapped gold with less adverse impacts on the environment, which is, hey, thumbs up. Yeah, not bad. So, right. Like, usually the way that we typically extract gold is to use something called pressure oxidizing techniques, which is kind of like cooking. But that cooking process is super energy hungry. So they wanted to look into an eco-friendlier way of extraction. And what they found was something called selective leaching. So they use a fluid to selectively dissolve the gold from the pyrite. And not only do the dislocations trap the gold, but they also behave as fluid pathways that enable the gold to be leached without affecting the entire pyrite. It sounds like fracking, basically. Kind of, yeah, like miniature crystal-dependent fracking. Yeah. yeah. So it can be done if you're looking for the new gold rush. Uh, start getting all your pyrite collected, and you can get super, super, super tiny pieces of gold that, you know, are apparently still worth a lot and yeah. keep getting more expensive. You just got to be persistent, that's all. And watch those solvents, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> be yeah. careful. That's really the question. So, like, you know, <laughs> fracking, when it was initially invented, everyone was like, oh, wow, this is great. It turns out, no, it causes earthquakes and poisons the water. 
<laughs> like maybe this is going to absolutely destroy some fool's gold mine out there and we're going to feel the effects later. But yeah, eh, I think the key inevitable. is to take it out of the environmental, you know, landscape before right. you start playing with it. Do it in a lab. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from i.stuff.co.nz or... <laughs> yeah, that's the site. Um, it's titled Radioactive Wild Boar Pig Hybrid Emerged from Nuclear Wasteland of Fukushima. Ooh. Oh, okay. I think I followed yeah. all those words. Yeah. Yeah. So a hybrid species of wild boar and domestic pigs is marauding around Fukushima. Japanese scientists have discovered by surprise after investigating the effects of radiation on animals. Ooh. For years, hunters have been tracking down radioactive boar, which number in their hundreds and registered levels of the radioactive element cesium-137 300 times higher than is safe. But they were alive somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, apparently boars are, you know, Tough. immortal yeah. and immune <laughs> to everything. So this biological invasion started after wild boar from surrounding mountains gradually moved into depopulated towns, meeting domestic pigs, which ran wild after farmers were forced to flee the area. The exclusion zone was lifted in 2018, but officials have struggled to reclaim some areas from the boar, which have become <laughs> unafraid of humans. Like, this is oh, our dear. territory now. Get out. <laughs> yep, pretty much. They moved in. Yeah. They, they own it now. Uh, the genetic sequence of 338 wild boar collected between 2006 and 2018 from across the region were analyzed, with scientists discovering that at least 18 boar phenotypically identified as wild boar had a European domesticated pig haplotype, the report explained. Hmm. Frequencies of this haplotype have remained stable since first detection in 2015, this result infers ongoing genetic pollution in wild boar populations from released domesticated pigs. So the study also found that more boar pig hybrids had since been discovered beyond the confines of the radiation hit areas of Fukushima, with domestic pig genes apparently migrating into the general boar population, not just the irradiated wild boar pig hybrid population. Mm -hmm. So the report says the present findings suggest a need for additional genetic monitoring to document the dispersal of domestic genes within wild boar stock. However, Donovan Anderson, a research scientist involved in the study, said the pig genes would most likely be diluted with each further generation. Anderson says the changes are at low frequencies and diluting with time. Therefore, we may not see any changes to boar as a result of hybrids. The current behavioral changes we see are from the absence of people as boar quickly took over the abandoned areas. I think the pigs were not able to survive in the wild, but the boar thrived in the abandoned towns because they're so robust. Aw, so they basically came in and mated with them and then let the pigs die. Apparently, Aww. yeah. It seems mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's boars. They're very cruel yeah. and manipulative, I, I guess. <laughs> not really the main trait they're known for, but in this case, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, so human evacuation of the area resulted in a unique rewilding of swaths of the region, a native blue flower that had previously disappeared from the landscape after being declared endangered by the government returned two years after the disaster. However, scientists did notice that the frogs living inside the exclusion zone were much darker than those on the outside, suggesting that higher melanin may help them cope with radiation. Hmm. 
So the Oracle ends there, but basically stuff is going wild. <laughs> yeah, they're proving they're stronger than we are, basically. Yeah, like they didn't even find any mutations due to the radiation yeah. in the boars. They're just like, oh, they they mated with pigs and now they're part pig now too. <laughs> now there's <laughs> gangs of boars running the place. Yeah. What could yeah, possibly so, go wrong? <laughs> I know. So I don't know how they're ever going to reclaim Fukushima from the boars. Uh, boars are pretty scary. We have a big boar problem in the US. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um. Well, you know what? We don't. I don't know that we need that area back. Let the boars have it. Like we screwed <laughs> it up. They fa- they managed to survive what we did to it. I think they've earned it. I know. <laughs> you make a compelling point, Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, we'll send this over to the Japanese. And see yeah, they- tell them. <laughs> tell them Jennifer said so, and they'll be like, "Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense." Yeah. Fair, fair, fine. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This one is a quick little update on something we talked about almost exactly one year ago today, namely the quest to solve the mysterious eerie hum of the Golden Gate Bridge. Ooh. So for those who don't remember, the Golden Gate Bridge received some structural upgrades in June of 2020, which were meant to make it more aerodynamic. If you've ever seen the famous footage of Gallup and Gertie, the bridge in Washington state that began to resonate with the wind in 1940 until it was like whipping back and forth like this giant guitar yep. string. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's classic footage. So, but it illustrates really clearly how important bridge aerodynamics can be. And the Golden Gate Bridge was nowhere near as bad off as Gallup and Gertie, which tore itself to pieces shortly after it was built. But computer simulations had showed that the Golden Gate Bridge could have problems if it ever encountered winds over 69.34 miles per hour. And in fact, it had already been shut down three times when winds were close to that speed in 1951, 1982, and 1983. So in 2020, it got an upgrade that would allow it to withstand winds above 100 miles per hour. Unfortunately, their simulations weren't good enough because ever since then, the Golden Gate Bridge has been humming at an almost perfectly tuned A note whenever the wind blows at a particular angle, which it apparently Uh, uh, does quite a lot. Oh, no. And most local residents are not enjoying the constant noise. (laughs) Uh, A few call it soothing, but others have dubbed it creepy, eerie, and unbearable. One resident posted on the social media app next door that it sounded like a noise I could imagine jailers using to torture prisoners. Wow. So bridge spokesperson Paolo Kosulich-Schwartz said, After studying this phenomenon extensively, we've determined that the sound comes from new railing that we installed on the west sidewalk. And they've been working ever since to find a way to dampen the noise while still leaving the bridge safe in higher winds. Others feel like the added safety is overkill, noting that 100-mile-per-hour winds would only come in a tornado or hurricane situation, and no hurricane has ever hit the California coast in the history of the state. Personally, as someone who just recently went through an extreme winter storm that had never happened in the history of Texas, I think now is probably not the time to be assuming that (laughs) once-in-a-lifetime weather events could never happen to you. (laughs) Yeah. But at any rate, the engineering company RWDI has now built a full-size replica of a 12-foot section of the bridge inside a massive wind tunnel. And they've been subjecting it to blasts of various speeds and testing modifications to the new railings to see if they can silence the hum. And they now believe they have a solution and will be making an announcement about further modifications they'll be making to the bridge in the next couple of weeks. For those who say they like the eerie wailing, there are already several musicians in the San Francisco Bay Area who have created pieces and playlists based on the sound. So you can play those back to your heart's content even after it's gone. (laughs) 
I don't know. It's hard to say if it would annoy me or not. Like, it feels like constant tinnitus. I don't know. I think maybe you'd get used to it, but maybe not. Maybe I'm being horribly insensitive <laughs> to people with tinnitus right now. <laughs> uh, you can, but it really depends. It depends on a lot. Right. I have tinnitus. Oh. <laughs> well, you seem like a chipper man anyway. Like you... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm coping. Right, right. <laughs> it's a daily struggle, but I make it. Maybe if you went to San Francisco, though, like, the hum of the bridge would counteract the Oh, they the just waves. cancel each yeah. other out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to uproot my life now. That, that seems like a good idea. Get my message to Japan, and then I'm going to send you to San Francisco. I'm Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include a new kind of ransomware tsunami hits hundreds of companies, how trees act as New York City's natural air conditioning units, and science YouTuber wins $10,000 bet with physicist. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.